0: Dermatology Snapshots, March 2022 Paper 1 Assessment of the diagnostic accuracy of baseline clinical examination on ultrasonographic imaging for the detection of lymph node metastasis in patients with high-risk cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck Toquez et al. Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology Why we chose this paper? UK guidelines suggest that lymph node imaging in the absence of suspected or clinically detectable lymph nodes is unnecessary, except for very high-risk lesions, where high-resolution ultrasounds of the regional lymph nodes may be considered. We worry we might be missing metastasis this way. Study aim and design. The authors retrospectively compared diagnostic accuracy of clinical examination versus ultrasound for lymph node metastasis detection, and specifically how accurate ultrasound is if clinical examination fails to pick it up. What were the main findings? Among 233 patients with high-risk squamous cell carcinoma, 22 had cytologically confirmed metastasis. 91% 91% of these were detected by ultrasound, but only 50%, 95% confidence interval, 28 72%, by clinical examination. Where they were missed on clinical examination, ultrasound picked up the metastases in 82%. However, the overall specificity of ultrasound was only 78%, with a positive predictive value of 29%. Limitations, is it applicable? This was a very small retrospective study and we wonder if the clinical examination may have been less thorough knowing all the patients were going to undergo ultrasound and cytology. What's the take-home message? The study suggests we may miss a lot of metastasis by using clinical lymph nodes examination alone in high-risk squamous cell carcinoma but that using ultrasound in everyone may result in unnecessary FNA procedures. Larger studies are needed. Paper 2. Efficacy of Treatments for Cholestatic Pruritus A Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis Dervet et al. Actor of Dermatology and Venereology Why we chose this paper? Cholestatic pruritus can be severe and debilitating. Dermatologists are often consulted when traditional options, such as cholestyramine, fail requiring knowledge of alternative treatment options. Study aim and design. A systematic review was performed with meta-analysis of randomised controlled trials. What were the main findings? 93 studies were selected for systemic review and 14 randomised controlled trials were included in the meta-analysis. Cholestaramine remains first-line treatment although studies evaluating its efficacy are limited and compliance is poor due to side effects. Rifampicin, 300mg per day, is considered second-line treatment, with data from previous meta analysis. The authors suggest naltrexone, 50mg per day, is the third-line treatment option. Other treatments include sertraline, fibrates, ondansetron, phototherapy and gabapentin. Limitations. Is it applicable? Treatment recommendations don't reflect the quality of evidence. For example, a relative paucity of studies on cholestyramine. What's the take-home message? After failure of cholestyramine for hepatic pruritus, we can consider rifampicin second-line treatment. Thereafter, some utilise naltrexone, phototherapy or neuropathic agents such as gabapentin. Paper 3. Efficacy and safety profile of oral spironolactone use for androgenic alopecia. A systematic review. James et al, Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. There are limited treatment options for female pattern hair loss. Spironolactone is increasingly used, but there's limited knowledge of the safety and efficacy. This paper is helpful to allow us to better inform patients of the likelihood of treatment success and risks. Study aim and design. A systematic review was performed, searching for studies with the search terms spironolactone and alopecia. What were the main findings? A total of 12 studies were included, with 286 participants lactone was used as monotherapy in 67, 23.4% of the 286 patients across all studies and was used in combination with topical minoxidil, oral minoxidil, low-level laser therapy or iron supplementation in in the remaining study participants. Varying doses were used from 25 to 200 mg for 6 months to 4 years. When employed as monotherapy, 33, percent of the 67 participants, achieved improvement. Notably, spironolactone was largely ineffective in studies where the dose was less than 100mg. Significant improvement was reported after at least 12 months of use at 100mg to 200mg daily. The most common reported adverse effect was lightheadedness or dizziness. Limitations. Is it applicable? The evidence base is poor, with most of the included data derived from case series. What's the take-home message? Based on low-quality evidence, spironolactone monotherapy shows some improvement in about half of patients with female pattern hair loss. Successful treatment seems to be confined to reports where dosages of 100 to 200 milligrams were utilised. Paper 4 Lack of association between atopic dermatitis severity and worsening during pregnancy, a cross sectional study. Rikita et al. Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Previous studies have reported 52 to 61% chance of worsening of atopic dermatitis during pregnancy, but Rikita et al. reported a much lower rate of only 17% in their American cross-sectional study of 211 females. Worsening during pregnancy was not associated with atopic dermatitis severity, but was associated with premenstrual syndrome. This is reassuring for female patients with atopic dermatitis, even if it's severe, who are planning a family. Paper Five, Tofacitinib as a Treatment for Refractory Dermatomyositis: A Retrospective Study from Two Academic Medical Centers. In the largest cohort of its type to date, Min et al. reported that tofacitinib plus or minus hydroxychloroquine led to clinically significant improvement for recalcitrant skin and muscle disease in dermatomyositis in 11 patients all of whom had received at least four systemics before jack inhibition. The mean cutaneous dermatomyositis disease area and severity index improvement was 17.8 points. This was a retrospective, small but encouraging study. Paper 6 Superficial basal cell carcinoma Think Deeper Step sectioning of skin biopsy specimens yields 14% more aggressive subtypes. Shiruniatel plus one. Why we chose this paper topical therapies and cryotherapy for superficial basal cell carcinomas are unlikely to be effective for non superficial basal cell carcinoma, so accurate histological diagnosis, especially where there's clinical uncertainty, is important at the outset to prevent unnecessary recurrence. Study aim and design. To compare whether sectioning to eight levels is more likely to detect aggressive basal cell carcinoma components than the standard four levels. What were the main findings? Out of 100 specimens with superficial basal cell carcinoma on initial four level sectioning, 14 were found to have more aggressive subtypes when sectioned to eight levels. Amongst those who only had superficial basal cell carcinoma even on eight levels, 26 underwent excision, and seven of these were also found to have aggressive subtypes. Head and neck specimens were more likely to have aggressive basal cell carcinoma subtypes on levels five to eight. Limitations, is it applicable? At St George's, at least six levels are normally analysed and reassuringly, we usually follow up superficial basal cell carcinoma to ensure resolution with topical treatment. What's the take-home message? Eight-level sectioning may detect 14% more aggressive subtypes but even with eight levels, at least 8% more may be missed. Good communication with the pathology department is paramount in ensuring the best chance of appropriately subtyping basal cell carcinoma. Paper 7. Food Anaphylaxis in the United Kingdom. Analysis of National Data 1998-2018. Conrado et al., British Medical Journal. Why we chose this paper? As dermatologists, our patients often look to us for guidance on possible allergies, particularly in managing paediatric eczema. Hospital admissions for food-induced anaphylaxis are increasing globally. Study aim and design. This retrospective analysis of UK population data from 1998 to 2018 looked at hospital admissions, deaths and EpiPen prescriptions to evaluate evolving trends in food anaphylaxis. Unlike many other studies, the authors looked specifically at emergency admissions with anaphylaxis only. What were the main findings? 30% of approximately 102,000 hospital admissions for anaphylaxis over this 20-year period were food-induced. which is a five point seven annual increase in food induced anaphylaxis admissions, with the greatest increase among increase amongst young children. The case fatality rate, the number of fatalities as a proportion of admissions, of a suspected food induced anaphylaxis, decreased from 0.7 to 0.3%. Forty six percent of the deaths were triggered by peanut or tree nut. Cow's milk was the most common trigger for school-aged children, 26% of deaths. EpiPen prescriptions increased by 336%. The peak age for fatal food-induced anaphylaxis and hospital admissions was during teenage years, but persisted into early adulthood. Limitations is this applicable. Analysis of the data, especially the cause of death, was thorough. This was a very large UK series, but was ultimately reliant on coding. Many people have seen in A&E with anaphylaxis not needing admission will have been excluded here. What's the take-home message? Admissions due to food-induced anaphylaxis are up, but deaths are down. This could be due to improved recognition and management. The authors suggest increased admissions may be related to changes in NICE admission criteria rather than true increased prevalence. Paper 8. Budesonide capsules for peristomal pyodermic gangrenosum, Bertler et al. Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Finding a topical therapy for peristomal pyodermic gangrenosum that doesn't either interfere with pouch adhesion or cause stinging due to alcohol content is a challenge with Bertler et al. proposed a solution to this month. Three me- milligram budesonide capsules, which seem to be available in the UK. They care, claim that patients can crack the capsule open, sprinkle the contents on the wound prior to pouch change, yielding significant clinical improvement without pouch adhesion issues. Paper 9. covid perniosis Is this a true phenomena? Rocher et al. Paediatric Dermatology. The case 4. A sizable number of cases of COVID-toes have been reported, including from observational studies of COVID. Rocher et al. 2021. Anecdotally, clinicians have noticed a surge of perniosis since the pandemic began. This clear temporal link is a reasonable argument for the skin changes being linked to COVID. Although in the majority of cases, PCR and COVID serology was negative, this may be because it's hypothesized that the perniosis is actually caused by type 1 interferon rather than the virus itself. A high production of type 1 interferon is suggested to be associated with early viral control and mild course of COVID infection. Type 1 interferon may also suppress antibody response, which could explain why these patients wouldn't develop antibodies and fail serological detection. Damsky et al. 2022 and et al. 2020. The case against. Despite the above argument, the strikingly low rates of COVID positivity makes COVID an unlikely cause. It's more likely that COVID-toes is an epiphenomenon a result of sedentary lifestyle, spending lengths of time inside in cold homes with reduced activity, alterations in peripheral circulation and inappropriate coverage of hands and feet. Clacko 2020. What do you think? Let us know. Chanson de matin, Edwin Algar, 1857 to 1934, by the Advanced String Group, Sir William Perkins School. Isla Galpin, first violin; Hyann Lee, second violin; Miss Townsend, viola; Amelia Christian, cello.